0: Before we get started with today's podcast, I want to remind you that we have a webinar coming up with Dr. Jesus Rosales-Ruiz. It's going to be June 2nd, 2019, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Jesus will be talking about cues in context, so it's going to be very relevant to our current conversation that we're having with Sarah Owings. You can go to equocity.com to learn more and to register. As always, we'll be recording the webinar, so if you can't attend the live event, you'll be able to listen to it afterwards. But if you sign up before June 2nd, you'll get the early bird price. Again, to register, go to our website, equiosity.com. And now, let's get started with today's podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to Equiosity our podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Curland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. We're in the middle of a conversation with Sarah Owings. Sarah is a dog trainer. It may seem odd that in a podcast about all things equine, that we're talking about dogs. But there's a lot of value in looking at what people are doing with other species. I learned a long time ago that the way to expand a field is not from within, but by bringing in fresh ideas from outside. So I love going to the Clicker Expo and sitting in on the presentations of the other members of the faculty. They're not going to be talking about horses, not directly anyway. But it doesn't matter. They can be talking about the training of dogs or of exotic animals or even of people. There's going to be something in the presentation that will be of value and that I can take back to the horses. That's going to help me to be a much better trainer. So I love listening to the expo talks. And Sarah is on the Clicker Expo faculty as well. And one of the characteristics that all the faculty members have in common is we are all lifelong learners. When we aren't presenting, we're sitting in on each other's talks. So this year, when I gave my talk on Cues Evolve Out of the Shaping Process, Sarah was sitting in the audience. We chatted afterwards about the presentation, but there wasn't enough time to really have the conversation that we both wanted, not at the expo. We both had other presentations we had to get to, but not to worry. It just gave us the perfect excuse to record a podcast together. This has two great advantages. The first is Dominique got to join us for the conversation. And the second is you get to listen in. Last week, Sarah described for us the three-step process she uses for teaching a new behavior. First, you get the behavior, then you attach a cue to it, and third, you bring it under stimulus control. We ended with this question for Sarah. I asked her, when you listened to my talk on cues evolve out of the shaping process, what was it that struck you in that? That's a question I very much want to understand better. And now we get to listen to Sarah's answer.
1: Well, what struck me was, I I think I was, I I think I was still compartmentalizing, right? In my efforts to be super clear with these conditions, I was very much like, you know, do your add a cue session separately from your shaping session, make it separate, make everything clean and clear. And what I heard you were talking about was this idea of just letting the cues evolve from the shaping process itself. I was thinking a lot about that in terms of, is that something that is, like I was thinking when you shape a horse to do something more often than not, the horse will be kind of standing near you and I was thinking how herbivores have that 360 view, right, all the way. Not, is it not 360? But it's but it's right. Their
0: eyes are on the side of their head, so they can on the side of the head. Right, so there's
1: right.
0: a they have a, a quite a range of of vision, right? Right.
1: Whereas the, the carnivores have a, a little bit more of a narrow vision, sort of straight ahead, kind right, of a right. What's ahead of them? So if you think about the descript, what I just described of a of a carnivore going to a going to a table. Getting clicked, orienting to the treat, going, and then now orienting right to me, and then going. See what I mean? There's a lot of forward focus, right? But with the herbivores, I was thinking they are so environmentally aware that I mean, I'm sure that if you just cross your toes, they know it. Even in their in their peripheral vision, they know it. So I was really thinking about how you were able to bring that in
0: earlier. Right. So always it is go to people for opinions and horses, and we'll grant you dogs for answers. So it's always interesting to have these discussions between trainers. And then ultimately, you go ask the animals that you're working with. So what do you think of these ideas? And if uh, as you explore and experiment with them, you go, oh, that actually adds some clarity. I can absolutely see... For some of the things that I want to teach, that moving and being less predictable may be an advantage for certain things that I want to teach. Mm -hmm. And then being more of the dance partner is very much what I want for other things that I want to teach. And a lot of what we're doing with the horses, the work in hand, for example, it is you're dancing with your horse. And so you want them to read your cues. You want Mm -hmm. them to tune into your body. So I don't want to resist that. I want to enhance that. So a lot of my background comes from this fascination with balance and this love of the feel that you have when you are, whether it's under saddle or beside a horse, and you're moving in sync with them. It's just, it's just heaven. So, Mm -hmm. so a lot of why i train the way i train is because of what i train and and then it's also because of the species that i've focused on so those of us who work with horses have the honor of working with the species that is represented by clever hans and of course the you know the clever hans story is the horse that was in the early 1900s who his owner taught him to do all kinds of he could count and you could say how much is, uh, you know, six times four and he would tap out with his foot. He would tap out until he got to 24 and he just astounded audiences with his ability to answer the questions that were being presented to him. And of course, this had to be a fraud. How could this horse possibly do this? So they took the owner away thinking that the owner was queuing this horse in some way. And so they, they, they very clever will, we'll take this, the owner away and then we'll expose this as a fraud because of course, no horse could be smart enough to do mathematics and Mm -hmm. he could still answer the questions. Mm -hmm. So this is really puzzling because, you know, horses, horses, the common belief is that horses are stupid animals. And if they're stupid Mm -hmm. animals, they couldn't possibly be answering this kind of questions. And it took, a lot of very clever detective work for someone to f- really recognize that what this horse was doing was reading body language. And as long as mm-hmm. someone, as long as the people in the audience knew the right answer, he got the right answer because he was mm-hmm. reading. There was, you know, there'd be some, some subtle change in the, per- in the people as the right answer was approached. And he would read that and he would get the right answer. And so, mm-hmm. as soon as they recognized what he was doing, there was this collective sigh of relief because, oh, good, horses are actually stupid animals after all. <laughs> not, oh, no. not oh. you know, at, which is not horses are these brilliant, brilliant uh, at reading body language. We oh missed that. And, missed and we completely. missed it. And so, what I know is that horses are brilliant at reading body language you shift your balance even slightly they notice mm-hmm. if i want yep. for example if i'm if i want to free shape having my horse put his ears forward i have to look at the ears my horse is going to notice no matter where i'm standing if i'm standing to the side if i now stand in mm-hmm. front of him mm-hmm. if i sit in a chair he's going to notice that i'm looking at his ears right. and and that's going to be relevant information so rather than fight it I decided to embrace it, so I, you know, I would listen to the the studies, like some of the studies that Kathy Sadao did early on in her career, where she was working in Hawaii with dolphins in a language lab. It was one of those experiments where they were seeing if they could teach dolphins to read symbols, and you had to wear sunglasses and hide all body language cues because they didn't want the clever hans effect this was a scientific study and you had to control for all variables except for the symbols that were being presented well that's yep. great for a scientific study but that's not how you would teach a 3-year-old to read or 4-year-old to read we would make mm-hmm. it as we would make it easy for them to learn not harder for them to learn so mm-hmm. i've always embraced the clever Hans ability of my horses and said, well let me use the fact that they are so good at noticing. And rather than fighting it and trying to negate it, let me just let me just fold that into the shaping mix. So in a way they're telling you what they think the cue is. Yeah. They're and telling, you're using that. I'm noticing what they're noticing. And then and then I can build on that. I can change it. I can shift it. But I notice what I want to do is become better at noticing what they're noticing. And it's very important. You know with Woody, I've done a lot
2: of groundwork, healing really. I mean, this horse will follow me every little turn I make, whether it's in front of him, him on the outside, he mimics everything I do. And so there was a point where I wanted him to stay on the mat. And usually when we go off the mat, I do this little gesture, which most of your students do, Alex. We all do this little gesture, telling the horse, okay, it's like you're opening the door almost and saying, well, we're moving forward now, okay? And so I thought, okay, if I don't do this little gesture, he's going to stay on his mat. (laughs) It's not Mm -hmm. the gesture. It's my feet he's following. Uh, the yes, yes, minute yes. my I can put my hands in the back, the minute I move my feet, my foot, he's ready to go. So mm-hmm. this little gesture is extra cherry and cream on the pie, but for him, right. that's not the cue. The cue is my feet. And so I think that when in a lot of dog sports, like agility, they want the dogs to be independent workers like Mm -hmm. they want the dog to go somewhere and the handler is not is is somewhere else i know for me with woody this was like really hard to show him to detach from me yeah Mm -hmm. because he's Mm -hmm. always so in tune with everything i do if i back up he backs up if i as long as he's next to me I can have him almost walk on his head but to have him detach from me and work independently is not something we do as much with our horses but I think and maybe I'm mistaken but I think in the in the dog sports they do a lot of independent work and Mm -hmm. I wonder if if perhaps there's a difference in how you would teach that because if the cue is independent of the handler,
0: I don't know if the teaching method has to be different. I'm not sure. But, but the cues are still going to evolve out of the shaping process. Yes, there are going to be cues. There's going to be information that because our, our learners want to figure out how to get. Yeah. The re- to the reinforcement. So any information, even if it's superstitious and it turns out to have nothing to do with any rule structure that you've set up for how the animal is to get to the reinforcer, the horse happens to be looking at the gate just as his ears are popping forward. So, and that's when I click and treat. So he thinks that looking at the gate, is what is getting me to click and treat. And I think it's putting the ears forward that I'm clicking and treating, but we're under two different rule structures. And until I create a puzzle moment to see what is it that my animal is actually doing? What does he think the answer is? Oh, it's look at Mm -hmm. the gate. Oh, oh, Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with the ears here. I thought I was teaching ears forward, but it's always because he's always popped his ears forward just as he's looking out of the arena. Oh dear. Right. That kind of thing. But- Even and I, duration. I, yeah. We've been talking about duration yeah. for weeks and one. weeks and weeks.
2: And really, very often, the problem is not so much that we don't know how to build duration. It's just that the animal is not clear on what the cue is to break out of the behavior. So uh-huh. there's all these cues that he's thinking, okay, I can, I can stand up and get, get um, out of the mat because really it's the cue to
0: break the stay is not clear. Which is why te- teaching in pairs yeah. or teaching with a base behavior makes yes. so much sense because now it's yes. stand on the mat, target forward. Those two things balance one another. And there are cues that evolve around that. And just to back up for a, a little bit, because so horses are represented by Clever Hans and I know that they are very good at reading body language. But what I also have to believe is that dogs as predators are very observant of the environment and very good at reading body language because predators, In order to pick out, find, Mm -hmm. especially if if you are hunting a herd animal, you've got to be good at reading body language.
1: Yes, absolutely. And
0: and they're very good at reading humans. You know, I've heard dog people Mm -hmm. who, who make the comment that dogs are professional human watchers. That's what they do all day. They watch their people. So they're very good at reading people. The proof of the pudding of that is think of how many steps ahead of your actually picking up your suitcase and walking out the door does mm-hmm. your do- is your dog aware of the fact that you are going to be leaving for the weekend? And how many days and steps in advance of packing your suitcase do you have to go before you can break that cycle of your dog starting to worry because I know you're going to be leaving me, mother. So they're very good at observing. Mm-hmm. Yes. And figuring out what is relevant information.
1: Yeah, but it it gets, as you mentioned, Dominique mentioned, in the dog world, especially in competition, there is such an emphasis on isolated cues. It's such a, it's, I mean, we spend a huge amount of time teaching for it yeah. which is the idea that we want all the handler movements to be irrelevant
0: mm-hmm. and yeah, you would lose point yeah. I, th- I have to say that really tripped me up early on yes. because I don't train dogs and trying to you know puzzle my way through what am I seeing that that is relevant to what I want to do why are they doing it this way and this uh, Separation. This dis- these discrete. I want to say cues. They didn't make sense to me, because it's not yeah, and- when you're dancing. It isn't a cue. It's like I don't give a cue that creates this beautiful shoulder in or what it's. It's a dance. Just as if mm-hmm. you were waltzing with someone, if you there would be. Well, there are a series of cues, but they still need to be clear Uh, for both the animal. Yeah, but it's not a, it's not a cue. It's, that's not how you dance.
1: Right. I, I actually think it's, it's a really, that's what's, that's what made me so excited when I was listening to you, because in my development, I have reached this place where I've worked very hard to isolate cues. And there's all kinds of tests you put the dog through, you know, cover your mouth with your hand to make sure the dog's not reading your lips, Uh, put the glasses on, uh, turn your back on the dog, uh, change your positions, put a paper bag over your head, over your head. I mean, all these things to, to, and I actually, you know, when I was teaching for Karen Pryor Academy, we, we very rigorously made our students prove to us that they knew what their cues were. Yep. And I think that exercise is still important. Yes. Because what happens often to, in the, I'm sure in the horse world too, but in the dog world, is the dog is perceiving the cue as a little head tilt or something. Yep. And the trainer thinks it's the word. Right. And the dog gets punished. Right. The dog will get punished or blamed for being stubborn. Right. So I do a lot of work of saying it's really important for us to know what the dog is perceiving as the cue. Yes, um, yes, that's the, so, key.
0: that's the key. That's the key. Because I can do a transferred cue process. You know, if I wanted to do freestyle, way like Kay Lawrence and, and Michelle Puglio, and, and I wanted a, an umbrella over my head to cue a spin, that in part is a transferred cue process. And if I want a verbal cue to become important and relevant, I can work that in through a transferred cue process. And sometimes I I think it's really interesting to go through a process where you just say, okay, horse, dog, what are you listening to? Mm -hmm. And ask them what they think. And then you've got a choice of, okay, I thought shaking my head up and down meant back up. But you're doing a jambeta, Spanish walk gesture. So, do I insist that it means back up, or do I become more flexible and say, "Oh, somewhere in my shaping process, <laughs> boy, that got mm-hmm. that went through the Google Translate in an odd way." But <laughs> may, maybe, maybe it should mean maybe maybe shaking my head up and down. I'll go with what you think it. It means because I have that choice. Right. You know, do I do I insist that sit means sit or do I create a completely new verbal cue that doesn't have any background baggage behind it? Right. And now that I have consistent ways of getting the behavior, transferred cue process is easy to do.
1: Right. And why do we always have these verbal cues anyway? Because that fits us as primates. Right. They're for us. Uh, But it's really not that good for our learner, for our horses or our dogs. It's probably much, if what you're talking about is so respectful, Alex, because if you notice that it's your little head tilt or your feet pointing forward, or if that's what the learner is saying is relevant and you keep that cue as the relevant cue, then you're letting the learner tell you what is most natural for them yeah. or what's easiest for them to perceive rather than imposing this, you must learn English, you know, right, right, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. Um, so I just think it's a, that's what really made me so excited was I was like, I can do this. It's okay. As long as we're thoughtful about it, right? as long as we're, we're aware of those cues and not going to somehow impose something later that, right.
0: That makes sense. I think both models can actually merge together rather beautifully. That they're not in opposition. That actually merge together with this understanding that you can't, because what I've learned from the horses is you can't not cue. So there's another piece that early on, uh, and it was from Gary Wilkes. So Gary Wilkes, for those who don't know, he was he was a canine behaviorist. And he, I think it was probably around 91 or 92, he approached Karen Pryor and asked her if he if she thought clicker training would work for dogs. And Karen up to that point, she hadn't used clicker training for dogs. She'd used it with her horses, with the Welsh ponies that she had when she was At Sea Life Park in Hawaii, she had some Welsh ponies and she started experimenting with them and using the technology that she was learning for the dolphins. But she never thought to train the dogs because they were just farm animals. They were just around. But when Gary asked that question, she said, well, of course, of course you could. And so Gary was a very creative, inventive trainer. And it was early days. The science behind all of this was not well understood yet. We hadn't had the benefit of the Clicker Expo. We certainly had not had the benefit of being able to share with people like Dr. Jesus Fusales-Ruiz and Dr. Susan Friedman and these other behavior analysts who have been so generous with their time. So he was doing all kinds of things like treatless clicks. So sometimes he would click but not treat Sometimes he would treat but not click. Sometimes he would click and treat. He had all of these these different... And part of it, I think, as I look back on what he was doing, I think part of the reason that he did this was because he wanted behavior to vary. So it was early days in the shaping, and we, we didn't really understand all the rich variety of ways in which we could get behavior to happen. All of the environmental arrangements, the setting the environment up for success, the creating a repertoire and building on that. And so he had this wonderful cattle dog named Megan, who he had taught a really broad repertoire to. And when he was presenting he would have somebody, well, so give me a challenge, something that this dog, give me something new to teach her. And it might be they put out a, a prop and she would interact with the prop. And it's sort of a little bit like the 101 things you can do with a box. And he would then shape a new behavior. And it was fascinating to watch. I'm like, you know, just like you were describing the start of our conversation. If you haven't seen free shaping before, it's just magical. And I don't care how many times you've seen free shaping in the past. When you see a really skilled trainer with a skilled learner, it's, it's, just, it's just really fun to watch. It's amazing to watch. And it does look magical. So mm-hmm. Gary was using extinction, basically. But he didn't right. frame it that way. He didn't talk about it that way. We didn't know how to talk about it at that stage. But he would do all of these weird variations on sometimes I click, but I don't treat. Sometimes I'll I'll click several times and then I'll treat. And in one of his seminars he had a random number generator create a series of options that you had. So on trial number one you were to click and treat. On trial number two you were to treat but not click on trial number three. You were to click and treat on t- trial number four. You were to click but not treat, etc., etc. And it was generated oh by random number generator because what Gary stressed was, if you fall into a pattern, your animal will notice. And humans are really, really good at falling into patterns. We like patterns. We fall into patterns. But as soon as you fall into a pattern, your animal will notice. How did the learners respond? <sighs> I mean, I, I, that just sounds like chaos. Well, it was chaos.
1: I mean, it would just be like, just make them crazy. Well,
0: but it got behavior to vary. The point he was trying to make in this exercise was that you don't want to fall into patterns. And I thought, well, if my horse is really good at noticing patterns and I'm, <laughs> and I'm really bad at not falling into a pattern, why would I want to fight this? Why not instead use the fact that I'm going to fall into a pattern and my horse is going to notice it? So rather than Mm -hmm. fight it, let me use it. And with his dog, the reason it worked okay for Megan was because she had such a broad repertoire that within a couple of clicks, she could be offering something that she would get clicked and reinforced for. Mm-hmm. So it worked for her because she had a broad repertoire. But then when people tried to replicate it, they created a lot of frustration because they were working with new learners who didn't have the broad repertoire. Right, And that's when we started to get into some of the problems that you were describing in that sort of early learner model of this is what the manuals are telling us but actually my animals are telling me that this is frustrating right so you know i looked at some of this and said i don't want to fight what is easy it's funny because
2: it seems like a lot of what we do is using we understand behavior better and we use it You know, like if you have a dog who wants to go sniff, people used to fight against that. Now we use it as a reinforcer. Yes. So a horse is thinking that the cue for this behavior is that. And Alex, you're saying, I'm not going to fight it. I'm going to use it. If I need to transfer it to another cue, I will do that. But in the meantime, I'm going to work
1: with this cue that the animal has decided is the cue for the behavior I want him to do. And when when you're watching your learner that way, right, how do you know that learner wants to go eat some grass? How do you know? Because that learner will cue
0: you. That's
1: right. And if you're paying attention, you'll know. Sometimes, like with a dog that wants to sniff, they might lose focus slightly and they kind of pull a little bit away and then they'll come right back again. Yep. And then you're like, you want to go sniff. Okay, let's go sniff. Yep. But you're that's that two-way queuing. Yes. Back and forth. Yep. That's that's what's yep. happening now. That's where we are and that's and it's so exciting. And that's why I, I I was in my lecture I say it's a little bit unfortunate that we have the word stimulus control because a lot of people get really hung up on that.
0: I know. It needs a new name. And
1: I was calling it stimulus commun I was calling it stimulus communication because it has to go uh, and there's it has to go two ways where you're getting information from your learner and the learner is getting clear consistent information from you and that is what communication is so uh, that's what yes. I've been calling it is if you have good stimulus communication then both sides of the of the puzzle you know the learner and the teacher are clear with the pattern that they're expecting.
0: And then we move away from all of those comments about, oh, well, the training is so mechanistic. Mm -hmm. You're not acknowledging the emotions of the learner. And where I've always sort of went, what, what, (laughs) you know, have you, have you you not seen a clicker trained horse where it is this dance of cues, this, this communication back and forth, Mm -hmm. but when you're coming out of the older models of the command-based training, it takes a while to shift your thinking. So you could be clicking and treating, but still be in that command-based paradigm. Yes. So you've got the procedures. you've got the process. I'm clicking and I'm reinforcing behaviors I like, but you're still in them in an older mindset. And it's a journey. Mm-hmm. it's a It's a huge journey. To get to you know, this milestone, because we certainly have not gotten to a destination. I don't know that <laughs> there is a destination. No, it's really but we've but we've gotten to a milestone where mm-hmm. there is this recognition that our animals are communicating to us and that we can allow their behavior to modify ours. Now there's a perfect stopping place. Our conversation has brought us to a milestone. We have reached this recognition that our animals are communicating to us and we can allow their behavior to modify ours. When you reach a milestone, it's a good idea to pause and consider the path you've been traveling before heading off in search of the next milestone. So that's what we're going to do. We'll pause here and pick up next week with the conclusion of our conversation with Sarah Owings. And remember, we have a webinar with Dr. Jesus Rosales-Ruiz on June 2nd, 2019. It's going to be at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And as always, we'll be recording the webinar. So if you can't attend the live event, you'll be able to listen to it afterwards. But if you sign up before June 2nd, you'll get the early bird price. Again, to register, go to equocity.com. We'll be talking about cues in context, so the webinar is going to fit in perfectly with the current podcast. So bring your questions about cues and join us on June 2nd at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And until next time, have fun with your training.